This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. A happy ending depends on when you stop telling the story. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, Amanda. Hi, Tiffany. Yes, I'm Amanda Blackwood. I am super excited to be here with you today and uh, to talk about all kinds of really interesting stuff. I'm super excited to have you. Yes, you have quite the story to tell. I just... Sometimes that's exactly how I feel. It's a little bit overwhelming and you don't even know where to start to describe it. Right. So you're actually a survivor of human trafficking. Yes, I am. Three times. Three times? I was trafficked three different times. Wow. How does something like this happen? Well, if you go all the way back into the early childhood of most survivors or victims of human trafficking, most of us are no stranger to early childhood abuse. So I suffered at the hands of my family the entire time I was growing up. I was molested the first time when I was four by my older brother. I was uh, manipulated and emotionally uh, abused by my mother. And I was physically abused by my father. And that was my entire family. My dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot. And we didn't have any extended family that we lived around. So it really was my whole world. I was getting abused by every single person in my household. I was molested again at 12, again at 13, again at 15. At 17, I was raped by somebody that I thought was my best friend. So when you grow up in that kind of an environment, when it comes to human trafficking, basically I had been groomed for this my entire life. I had been trained to think that that's what my life was supposed to be. This is exactly who I was. And one of the uh, emotional abuses that I suffered from my mother was being told that if something continues to happen to somebody repeatedly, that you were the common denominator and that it was your fault. You had to figure out why it was your fault. Wow. That's, that's rough, especially to have all this like going on in one house and you literally have no support system. Right. There was nowhere I could turn to. Uh, When I did try to turn to anybody, I ended up in the foster care system, uh, only to be dragged back home. And the foster family never spoke to me again because they were uh, told that I had been lying about everything and that none of the abuse had ever happened. There were times when I would go to the nurse's station when I was still in elementary school and I would have a stomach ache. Except it wasn't actually a stomach ache, it was a cry for help. And they ignored that for the most part and kept on sending me back to class and sending me back home. I remember one time in particular where I couldn't find my hairbrush as a kid. And my dad said that if he found it before I did, that he would beat me with it. And he did. He walloped me pretty good. Whenever I cry, my eyes get really puffy and red and swollen. And I went to school with puffy and swollen eyes. And everybody thought that my dad had smacked me in the face and had been punching me in the face. And that wasn't at all what had happened. 
And when they kept on asking me about it, I kept on telling them, no, he didn't hit me in the face. He hit me on the butt with a hairbrush and it hurt really bad, but he didn't hit me in the face. And they called out child protection services anyway. And they opened up a case on my family. And after they left that same evening, so it was a very quick investigation, I was punished severely. And I didn't do anything wrong that day except go to school crying. So I started to learn not to cry and to not tell people what was going on behind the scenes. Right. I can totally get that. Not to mention sex at that point, probably like cut off, right? Like there's no feeling, there's no, no emotion behind it. Once you've been invaded like that so many times, it's got to make you numb. Yeah, I was um, definitely struggling with that for a very long time. Sex became something that wasn't um, something that people would enjoy. For me, it was a tool. So when I was 18 was the first time I was trafficked. And I used sex as my opportunity to have a place to live. I would have been homeless otherwise. And my boyfriend at the time was more than twice my age. And when I was trafficked for the first time, he basically loaned me out to his buddy for a birthday weekend. And for 52 hours, I was repeatedly raped and assaulted. When I finally got out of there, I got back to the place where I had been staying and I gathered up my stuff and I left. I knew that this was wrong. But I didn't understand that it was wrong for me to use my sex to have a place to live. That's the way you were wired now. Right, exactly. This is who I believed I was. This it, People were going to take it away from me if I didn't just give it out freely, so I might as well get something for it. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Yeah, I was a very damaged 18-year-old. So I ended up leaving there, and I uh, that was in Arizona the first time I was trafficked. I floated down, around for a while, ended up down in Air, uh, Florida. I haven't been back since this incident, so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully changing that next year. I've been invited to a public speaking opportunity out there. That'll be oh, fun. Great. <laughs> but uh, I got down to Daytona Beach, Florida, which is where my dad's mother lived. And my plan at the time was that I needed surgery on my knee. I had been injured on the job working on a horse farm. I was going to go down to Florida and stay with her while I got the surgery. And then I was going to get back on my feet and then move on. I was going to plan. I planned on staying in Florida. I had a job lined up after everything. Um, I had a whole plan lined up. And when I got down to the Daytona Beach bus station, I called up my grandmother to have her come and pick me up because I didn't have her address. I didn't know where I was going from there. And her husband, my dad's stepfather, answered the phone and said, we are not coming to pick you up. You're on your own and good luck. And they hung up. I didn't know for a long time that the only reason they did that was because my grandmother was on a lot of medications and was very susceptible to um, suggestion. And my parents called her and said, if you take her in, we'll never speak to you again. Wow. So they found a way to extend this abuse they still do it to this day with trying to get the rest of any kind of extended family members to gang up against me. And I just don't care. I just block them. It's none of my business what they think. I don't care anymore. <laughs> so here I was in Daytona Beach at the bus station, bawling my eyes out, 1030 at night, strange city, rough part of town. 
And a young couple walk up to me. He was 22. She was 15. She looked older than that. but She was only 15. And they told me that they had a place that I could stay. And they would allow me to stay there until I could get on my feet. But what they really meant was they had a place that I could stay until they found the highest bidder. And they sold me to a man called Esteban, who then had me locked up for 23 and a half hours in a small room with no food, no water, and no bathroom facilities. Oh my God. This was 1999. So this is pre cell phones. No, really, very few people had cell phones at this point. They existed, but not for poor people like me. <laughs> I was dirt poor at the time. I had been homeless off and on. So, you know, I was doing what I could just to get by. I didn't have anything like a fancy cell phone. Now, now we've all got them in our back pockets. So here I was trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of this room. And I sat down long enough to think to myself, I loved this TV show that was on in the 80s and 90s. It was called MacGyver and the guy could fix anything with a paperclip and a rubber band. I loved that show so much. I used to have a shirt that said, what would MacGyver do? And I wore it until it fell apart. I have since written to Richard Dean Anderson and told him that his TV show and him being on the show saved my life. And he's never responded, but I have to understand, I have to know that he's gotten the message and he gets it. He knows. But because of watching MacGyver all those years, I was able to critically think my way out and science my way out of this room. And I was on the run again. Oh, my God. Was there a window? How'd you get out? There was a window, but it had wood, a wooden board over it. And by the time I had finally pried the wood off of this window, my fingers and knuckles were bloody. I had splinters under my fingernails. It was awful. And I got it off just far enough to notice that not only were there bars in the window and I couldn't get through that way, but there were bricks on the outside of it too. Oh, no. Yeah. So I don't go into a lot of details on how I actually did manage to escape because I did write that into a book and it is Detailed Pieces of a Shattered Dream. It was my first book that came out in 2018. I finally told that story. When I first wrote that story, I thought that it was my only experience of being trafficked because I didn't really understand what trafficking was, what it looked like. I thought it was experiences like that where people are kidnapped or sold as a commodity. But after that, I learned that human trafficking, it was actually at a human trafficking conference in 2018, I discovered that human trafficking is defined as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts from another person. So there's no mention of money, not selling a person, and not prostitution. And there's no mention of transportation. That's human smuggling. So there's a huge overlap in all of these issues, and one one person can experience all three of these things at the same time, but defining one issue, human trafficking, and trying to say that it is human smuggling is damaging to the fight against human trafficking because there's so many people that are not transported. The majority of people are trafficked out of their own homes and usually by people they love and trust like parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, boyfriends and girlfriends. So trying to say that human trafficking is human smuggling or human trafficking is prostitution leaves so many people like myself not aware that what we are going through or what we went through could be defined as human trafficking. It's a massive crime, not just domestic violence. I think, I don't think anyone really knew what it was for a while because it would be street walkers, you know, and then you'd get a pimp 
and that pimp would now take over and he would sell you and everything like that. Or it was runaway kids that men would take and they would threaten them. They would beat them if they didn't do what they wanted. They took all their money. That's what you think of. But nowadays it comes in so many different forms. It's scary. And that's why it's such an open uh, definition too. Yeah, the kidnapping cases, the that where people are just grabbing kids off the streets and snatching them up and forcing them into trafficking, that only makes up about fifteen percent of all human trafficking cases. It's such a small, finite amount. And if you think about it, it makes sense because if you snatch a total stranger off a street, they're going to fight. They don't know you. They don't know where you're taking them. They are absolutely going to fight you tooth and nail. They're not going to do everything that you tell them to do. They don't care how much you threaten them. But you take that same person. And you put them with somebody who has known them for a while. They trust this person. And they know this person well enough to know what they're capable of. So if this person says, if you don't do what I'm going, if I, what I tell you to do, I'm going to rape your sister, which is a very common threat in the world of trafficking. They're more likely to believe them and more likely to do whatever it takes to save or protect their little sister or their dog or their parents or whoever else they might be getting threatened with. For me, they didn't have a lot of ability to threaten me. I didn't have family that I actually cared about or had anything to do with. (laughs) You can have them. You want them? They're yours. (laughs) I'll give you the address. (laughs) Just... Would, would just do an even trade? Yeah. <laughs> Yours are probably better than mine. Promise. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so after Florida, I ended up leaving and just floating around for a little while. Found my way out to California because that was about as far from Florida as I could possibly get. <laughs> and my plan out there, as weird as this sounds, here I am in Los Angeles and my goal is to be an executive assistant to somebody important. (laughs) Well, because of the abuse that I'd gone through, I had developed really heightened hypersensitivities. I could anticipate what somebody needed or wanted even before they could for the most part. That would have made me perfect for that kind of a job. I'd have been awesome at it, right? Right. Instead, I was on Alias and Will and Grace, and I modeled for Harley Davidson. So I had an adventure. <laughs> oh my God. I wandered around still all over LA. I kept on moving here and there, was homeless a couple of times, and kept on using whatever I had to be able to secure a roof over my head occasionally. Got married to a Hollywood stuntman for a while. It really was an adventure. And finally, I landed myself a job. And by job, I mean, I was low man on the totem pole as a mall cop. Within five months, I had taken over. I was now the director of public safety and security, making a livable wage. I had 16 people under me as my staff members at that property and took over five other properties beside it. Well, look at you, you You were Bart Mall Cop and you went into like. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly I didn't, I I wasn't the assistant. I had an assistant. It was incredible. Loved being able to do that. But in that amount of time, starting in 2004, that's when kind of internet dating took off, right? Mm 
So this was when I was on Alias and Will and Grace and was doing all of those things. I met somebody online. And the man I met lived really far away. He lived out of the country. He was in Scotland. And what a cool place. He was constantly sending me photos and, you know, little videos and stuff. And we got to know each other over a period of seven years. So he was with me, basically, long distance through all of these things that I had managed to do and accomplish and ups and downs and other relationships, and all kinds of crap. Meanwhile, we had both had Skype. So he would be having breakfast as I would be having dinner and we would share a meal once a day and we'd talk about our day or what we're expecting or what the day was yesterday. And we decided after seven years that we had fallen in love. So he asked me to get a fiance visa and move to Scotland and marry him and be with him forever. The land of kings and castles. I mean, this is what every little girl who grows up watching Disney movies dreams of, right? Right. This but is Disney what I lied to us. <laughs> oh, didn't they ever? It took him seven years to get me there and it took him seven days to start trafficking me. <gasps> what? Yeah. Yeah, I got some dirty dealings on that one. The first week there, it was paradise. You know, it was freezing cold. It was December, January in 2011. It was a massive blizzard that had just come through. People were having to walk miles to be able to get to work because their cars couldn't get out of their garages. It was freezing. The snowflakes that were smacking the window of the plane when my plane landed were the size of the palm of my hand. Oh, my God. It was terrifying. We'd never land a plane in those conditions here in the U.S. And I know this because I was a flight attendant after all of this. At the time, I was a terrible uh, flyer. I didn't like being in airplanes, but I'd be willing to do it to go on these adventures. And after that first week when the abuse started... I, he had already taken my passport, my driver's license, my debit card, all that stuff so that I couldn't use it. He said it was so that he could keep them in safekeeping, putting them in a small safe. But basically it was stripping me of my identity. I should have known. And I say that and I bash myself over the head for saying the word should. I got to stop shooting all over myself. But I did not see through this. You know, I just, I couldn't. It was impossible at that time. I was madly in love with this man. I had known him for seven years. Of course, he's trying to do what's best for me and protect me. Right. I mean, seven years is a long time to put into somebody not knowing like if they're like, what? Right. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person that he's ever done it to. I'm pretty sure he had somebody during that seven year period. But I don't know for sure. Right. So... During all of this, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of here very quickly, very early on. And one night, he had a drinking problem. One night, while he had way too much whiskey to drink, and I kept on handing him more, uh, I finally conned him into giving me back my passport and my driver's license and my debit card one night. And the plan was, I told him I was going to do this so that I could go down to the bank And I could go and pull out what little money I had and give it to him so that we could spend it. Because otherwise, it was just going to sit in the bank there in the States. And we'd never use it, never do anything with it. So he gave me back all of my stuff while he was drunk. So he didn't remember in the morning, which was beautiful for me. And I immediately, instead of going to the bank, hopped on a computer and tried to get an emergency flight home. The first flight out would have cost me $12,000. And I had a little over two two grand in the bank. So that wasn't happening. The first flight out that I could afford 
would be five days later. So I'd have to, yeah. So I bought it. I bought it. And when I bought it, I had like $11 left in the bank. And that was it. I didn't care. Just get me out of here. Get me back to familiar territory. Five days later, I had been so abused that I had a kidney infection and the flight took off without me because I was in the hospital and couldn't get to the plane. Oh, no. That was a non-refundable flight. I lost hope for a while after that. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. The abuse was far worse than anything I had ever experienced. And that's saying something. It was basically a revolving door. It was five, six, seven days a week. He was bringing people into the home and I would be forced to entertain them. The only thing that was different really at this point in, in time was that cell phones were everywhere. I got a cell phone. He gave me one. It was an older flip phone that he could track. So he knew where I was and he could monitor. So he knew who I was talking to. And the only person whose phone number I had aside from his was his sister's. And if I said anything about him or about anything that was dicey going on, I would be severely punished. So as well as being a survivor of molestation, rape, abuse, and human trafficking, I am a survivor of something called sport torture. I was basically tortured for the sport of it, for the fun of it, to see what would happen. I was waterboarded. I will never... I don't know if I'll ever be able to really be comfortable in a shower ever again. I can't stand to have water splashed in my face. Uh, I was starved. And the longest I went without sleep was eight and a half days of sleep deprivation. Holy How can you even function? I don't know. I don't think I was. It was, it was awful. It was awful. So I was still trying to figure out how I was going to get out of here. But with all of this going on, especially the sleep deprivation, I was losing hope. You know, I was getting very depressed. Sleep deprivation causes you to get depressed and have hallucinations, all kinds of stuff. I was seeing ghosts everywhere I went. I was hallucinating that the walls were falling apart and it was raining. I could hear rain when it wasn't raining. Things just deteriorated. My brain just started feeling like Swiss cheese. I started having problems trying to remember anything that was happening or going on. And one day I tried to uh, commit suicide. I tried to take myself out. I was going to take the train, literally, as my way out. Uh, And I was standing at the platform. I was a smoker at the time. And I had brought my little book of matches and my cigarette. And I lit my cigarette out there at the train platform. And a man walked out onto the platform. And he saw me smoking. And he walked over. He says, hi, have you got a light? So I handed him my book of matches. And I told him. I said, you can keep them. I won't need them anymore. And I told him this because I wanted him to ask. I wanted him to ask, oh, are you going to quit smoking? Because I would have told him the truth. I needed somebody to help me. Right. And he didn't ask. And I knew I couldn't make him care. There was something very wrong with me that anybody should have been able to see. But nobody could see. Because nobody wanted to get involved. Everybody had this mentality of, not my problem. And then his little boy walked out on the platform and ran up and grabbed his hand. And this little guy, he looked at me. He was about four, about the age I was when I started really experiencing the abuse. And for the first time in months, possibly years, somebody saw me. 
He didn't just look at me. He saw me. And his face scrunched up and he looked like he could see something in me, like there was pain that he could feel. And I knew I couldn't damage him the way I had been damaged when I was his age. And it took me about 20 seconds to realize that I was running, not towards the train, but rather back towards my prison. And I was, I was happy about it. I was grateful because I knew that if something was going to keep me alive, that there had to be more to my story than this. There had to be a greater purpose to my life. And I wasn't going to die here in Scotland with nobody knowing where I was and nobody caring ever again. And that's when I started to really formulate the plans. So because of everything that I had been through, when I was in my late teens, I had started learning about psychology, just kind of training myself. I didn't want to be a therapist or psychologist because I didn't want to have to deal with other people's crap. I had enough of my own. <laughs> right. But I wanted to understand my own. So I was studying all this stuff and I had learned about something called Stockholm Syndrome. Well, now we call it trauma bonding. But I still like to refer to it as Stockholm Syndrome because I'm old. <laughs> And I knew that he would know what Stockholm Syndrome was too. So if I was going to pull this off, I needed to start leaving little breadcrumbs here and there. And I needed this to be really convincing. I needed to pull off the best acting job of my life. And thanks, thanks to Hollywood, I had a little bit of training. I knew how to do this. And I started leaving those little breadcrumbs everywhere of how much I adored him, how much I loved him, how much I needed him and would do anything for him. And I didn't complain anymore. And I just... Went along with the program. And after a couple of months of doing this, months of this daily abuse, I finally sat him down and said, you know, when we filled out that fiance visa, we had to pick out a date that we were going to get married. And that date has come and gone. And if, if I stay here beyond my visa, which is running out, it was only a six-month visa and we don't get married, then that means my visa is going to be expired. And if the UK finds out, I can get kicked out of the country and never allowed back according to the UK laws. And you could lose your job as a police officer. We don't want that, do we? But if you send me back, I can find somewhere to stay, some friends to stay with for a little while, and then I can come back in six months' time. And when I come back in six months' time, that would be in time for Christmas. And wouldn't it be wonderful? That would be our first Christmas together ever. It would be so great. And the whole time I'm adding more whiskey to his glass. Here's a little more. Take some more. Within two hours, the man bought me round trip flight. I had convinced him that I would come back, that I would wow. do anything for him. He was a cop? He was a cop. Oh, you piece of shit. <laughs> he had been a cop for a great many years and was a cop in the school systems in Scotland. So he was in schools protecting children. Oh, I think I need to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Well, good for you. you know, <laughs> I mean, for no one likes... Oh. You're so smart. Like you thought of so many different ways that a lot of people probably wouldn't have to be able to get out of these situations. Like, how are you just going to pull another, what would you say? Like 12 grand out of here? Like, holy shit. Right. 
<laughs> yeah. Let's just come up with that out of nowhere. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, just because I got out doesn't mean the fight ended there either. There was still, there was still a long road ahead of me, but I got out, you know, and looking back, I've had people tell me several times that and I, I, I fully believe this now too. If you don't know what options are available to you, it is the same as not having options. There are resources available to be able to help people who are in domestic violence situations, who are in human trafficking situations. But if you don't know what those resources are, they're not really available to you because you don't know they exist. You know, how are you expected to go and find something that you don't know exists in the first place? First right. of all, I didn't realize that what I was going through was human trafficking. And second of all, I believed my only recourse at that time was to contact the police. And it was a police officer who was trafficking me. So what resources were there really? None. Yeah. Right. Hey, this is Ron. Do you like movies? Hey, this is Ragnar. Y'all like alcohol? Hey, guys, this is Stu. Do you like punishments? Hey, this is Goop. Do you like cinephiles? Hey, everybody, I'm Chase. You guys, do you guys like alcohol poisoning? If you like all of that, then check us out at Barrel Age Flips. We're on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms out there. When you got back to the States... Did you know to look for a shelter or where to go? I had reached out to somebody that had been an employee of mine. She took me in. She was working a graveyard shift, still at the job that I gave her as a mall cop. So while she was working graveyards, I would sleep in the bed. And when she got home in the mornings, I would get up and go to work. And it worked beautifully that way for a little while. He started attacking me and sending out photos and videos of the times that I was raped, the times that I was being trafficked. Uh, he started sending those out to my employer. I lost a job. He sent them to my friends. I lost friendships. And when this roommate of mine who had been my employee and who uh, was at the time my dearest friend and who I thought was my only friend, when she found out, she didn't know how to wrap her brain around it and reconcile what had happened. She thought that something like that couldn't happen to somebody who was 31 years old. And yeah, I was 31 when that happened, 2011. It can happen at any age. Like age is not a factor in this. Right, right, exactly. But most people think it only happens to underage kids. So when she couldn't make sense of it, she started telling people that I had been a high-priced call girl. Oh, no. Yeah. So it nobody believed me. you that you were actually trafficked, not even the job? Nope. Nope. I was basically treated as trash. I had such a hard time dealing with not just the job aspect of it and not losing the other friends, but that one specific friend. I had such a hard time with it that there was one day that I uh, sat down in a coffee shop with a blank line journal and I started to write. And what came out of me uh, was who I believe I would have been if the rumors and lies that she told about me had been true. I hated this character so much that by the second chapter, I tried to kill her off and she just didn't die. So it turned into a three book science fiction series, <laughs> post-apocalyptic, because who better to predict the end of the world than somebody who's already lived it. <laughs> and it took me years to be able to publish this one, but I had started writing it that year. 
And I was, I was crushed by what she had done to me. But beyond that, the cop in Scotland came looking for me. And he was banging on the neighbor's door one day. He had my address off by one number. And I was so new there, they didn't know who I was, so they couldn't tell him where I was. Oh, thank God. How do you get your address, well, ish? <laughs> He's a cop. Uh, true. Yeah, but over there. He's got friends here, too, I'm sure. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. So I ended up moving and moving and moving again and moving again. Uh, eventually, in 2016, I moved out to Colorado. So I had been living in L.A. off and on for 14 years at that point. That was home. It was the longest I had ever lived in one city in my entire life. And I up and moved just without hesitation. Got out to Colorado. And in 2018 is when I attended the anti-trafficking conference where I learned what human trafficking actually was. And in 2019, I found out that he had taken all those same photos and videos and put them up on pornography websites and was making money off of me still. He was making a fortune off of me. Not only that, I was recognized in a grocery store, not for being on Alias or Will and Grace or modeling for Harley Davidson or any of those really cool fun things that I did, but because I was on a pornography website. And he asked for my autograph. Oh my God. It destroyed me. But because I had been to that anti-trafficking conference the year before, I had made some contacts at some of these anti-trafficking organizations. I reached out to them. One of them immediately set me up with a counselor, a therapist. I traumatized her so much. I'm pretty sure she left the industry forever. Um, so they got me another one. <laughs> and they also paired me up. I found an anti-trafficking organization that paired me up with a legal team in New York City, who worked pro bono to get this stuff pulled off of these pornography websites with cease and desist orders. They were amazing. Yes. And they have been on the case up until this year, because every time one was pulled down, two more went up. The Can't fight has... go to jail for that? That's mm. um, revenge porn shit. Right. But that's if you're still living in the same country, and usually if you're living in the same state. Because if you think about it, how are you going to find a lawyer that's going to be able to take your case here in the United States and travel overseas and practice law in not just another state where they haven't passed the bar exam, but another country? There are none. Right. It is practically impossible to prosecute across international borders. So rather than being able to prosecute across international borders, I still got my justice. In fact, I call it custom justice because it's not legal justice. That's the name of my autobiography. At the end of my therapy, so I was in the therapy for about a year and a half. My therapist asked me in November of 2020, she said, I don't know that there's much more I can do to help you at this point, but I know you well enough to know that you're not going to stop your own journey here. You're going to keep going. What are you going to do next? And I said, I think I'm going to write my book. She said, really? I said, yeah, I think I'm finally ready. I'm going to write my book. And she said, oh, that's fantastic. Well, Christmas season's around the corner. Um, we'll give it a break for the month of December. I'll check in with you early January and see how you're doing. Said, Great. That works for me. So she reached out to me in early January. 
She said, how you doing? How's it going? I said, I'm doing great. How are you? And she said, no, that's not what I mean. How's the book going? Did you get started yet? (laughs) Oh, the book. Oh, it's done. She said, excuse me, it's done. She says, how short was it? I said, well, it's 350 pages so far. Um, I still have to add a couple of pictures and stuff in there. But she said, it's only been a month. I said, yeah, I know. I wrote the whole thing in the month of December. She said, that's incredible. So now what are you going to do? Same question. I said, I don't know. This time I have no idea. She said, well, I want you to paint. I don't know how to paint. I have done finger paints and I have done like rainbows when I was in kindergarten, but that's about it. I don't know how to paint. She said, well, I want you to learn. I want you to try because it doesn't matter what it looks like just so long as you do it. Being able to get that stuff out and being able to express yourself is so beneficial. So I'm going to send somebody over with canvases and paints and paintbrushes and I want you to try. And they brought over acrylic paints. Within three months, I had sold my very first painting that was being made into prints to be able to help raise funds to help get help other survivors of human trafficking get counseling. Within five months, I painted the piece that's over here behind me. And I know the people that are listening can't hear, but it is a well, piece. They can called, hear, they can't see. Or they can't see, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a piece called Carry Your Own Baggage. And it's a woman walking through a field, heading up a hill, carrying a very large suitcase. And at the top of the hill, there is one shade tree. So you can see that there's a destination. But the story behind the piece is that you have to carry your own baggage sometimes a long time in life before you find a safe place to set it down. And that's what she's doing. That This is a, a print that I have with me. The original is hanging in a home for human trafficking survivors in Chicago, Illinois. And because of that painting, because my autobiography came out the same month that they received that painting, the Chicago Tribune wrote an article about me. And my career was launched. So this is now what I do full-time. I'm a full-time author, artist, speaker, and I'm known as a survivor. That's amazing. I am so sorry for everything you went through. But Jesus woman, they didn't know who they were messing with. <laughs> you know, anytime anybody ever tells me that they're sorry for what I've been through, I have I, I sit back and I think for a second, I'm not. Less than 2% of all victims of human trafficking survive. If it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else and they probably would not have survived. I almost didn't survive. Except that little boy saved my life. I will never be sorry because I don't want to change places with anybody. I have this voice. I have the ability to paint, apparently. I have the ability to write. I can share my story. So many victims, so many survivors are silenced for the rest of their lives. And it wasn't until he attacked me that last time in 2019 that I even discovered I had a voice. I was perfectly willing to hide for the rest of my life and try to live my life in silence and peace. And he kept on finding me. And he included contact information for me, all of my social media information and those pornography stuff. People knew where I was. They knew how to find me. I figured if people were going to keep be finding me, they should probably know why. And that's when I started to speak up. Has he left you alone? <laughs> he certainly has. He's more scared of me than I am of him now. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
the month after my autobiography came out in June, it, that came out in June of 2021, or in uh, July of 2021, was when I met the man that's now my husband. So there's this great, big, huge, happy ending. Uh, he's sitting in our basement watching TV. Um, <laughs> and by great, big, huge, I mean teddy bear. He is sweet and gentle and kind and loving and patient. And he says, I'm the only person on the planet that's ever accused him of being patient. But he really is patient with me. It would take a special guy like that for me to be married again. <laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, relationship when you're in a relationship, obviously, like your trauma, it does go on that other person. You know what I mean? Like, cause there's going to be good days. You're going to have bad days. Things right. are going to trigger you. And so your partner is long for the ride. And that's amazing because it's, it can be a lot at times, but it's, it's beautiful because that's how you grow together. Yeah. He read my full autobiography before we were ever engaged. He knew everything. I think that's probably one of the secrets to our relationship is that we have that kind of communication. He knows it all because I already put it all out there for the whole world thinking nobody would ever read it because nobody would ever care. Like the man on the platform at the train station. I can't make them care. It's not my job to make them care. It's important for me to make me care. And my husband just happens to care. Kind of like the little boy on the platform. He is that innocence. He's the innocence that I needed in my life. <laughs> I love it. I'm so happy for you. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, my husband is a great guy. Um, super smart. I've always been kind of drawn to the intelligence anyway. But most people that are really intelligent have a short fuse. When it comes to me, he does not. When it comes to anybody else, especially on the road, oh, you better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> road rage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and we he has a 2014 Corvette. So when he gooses it, that thing is gone. <laughs> oh my, is it red? Yes. Candy apple red. <laughs> it's a gorgeous car. Oh, I bet. So where are your books? If somebody wants to buy it, Amazon and like Barnes and Noble. The Kindle versions are at Amazon. And I do have those. Amazon is having a hard time getting my paperbacks for whatever reason. I think it has something to do with, with coding and ISBN numbers. But they are all available through Barnes & Noble. You should be able to get them through Walmart or Target online as well. But I would definitely go straight to the source. That's me. Uh, people can find my books in my Etsy shop because I'll send out signed copies of each of my books. Uh, or they can actually purchase it directly from my website, growthfromdarkness.com. Do you sell your paintings on there too? I do sell prints of my paintings on Etsy. I have a solo art exhibition coming up in August here in Denver. So I'm holding on to all of the original pieces for right now. After that show, starting in September, I will have a lot of my original artwork available on Etsy. Awesome. That's great. I'm excited about that. It'll be my first solo. I've been in a couple of art galleries out here. 
but this will be my first real solo art exhibition. It's it's exciting. Good for, for you. I've never been to one because, like, I don't know. When you look at them on TV, people are like, what do you see? And I'm like, I see circles. Like, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, typically, this is what I have is a style where you can recognize that there's actually people. Um, I've done a portrait of Simon Pegg that I'm very proud of. It's all black and white grayscale the whole way through this entire enormous painting. I also did one of Nick Frost. I did our wedding photo, but that one is, of course, not for sale. Um, <laughs> that was that was an anniversary, one year anniversary present to my husband. Um, I've got all kinds of landscapes and stuff that I typically do. And if I ever do people, it's... Um, either up close of their face or usually from a distance, uh, like my carry your own baggage piece. But I have gotten in the habit recently of painting my own book covers. So that painting that's hanging in the home for human trafficking survivors was used on the cover of the book about my mom's mother. This is my grandmother, her life as a wing walker in the 1930s and 40s, and has a real life murder mystery in the book. Ooh. I didn't know until after the book was already published, but I do believe they did find him and he's still listed as a John Doe. Ooh, I'm intrigued. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's a fun book. I had so much fun with that one. Good. No, I love the painting. It it can look at it and think so many different things, but you totally get what you're going for. It's either, you know, you're getting to your destination or you're finally leaving to, you know, it's just very well done. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. That one was a lot of fun. I was very proud that the the, the, uh, Home for Human Trafficking Survivors wanted this. It's hanging in their entryway with the essay so that anybody who walks through the doors can see this and understand that there's hope that's still waiting for them at the top of that hill under the shade tree. I love that. So my book called Detailed Pieces of a Shattered Dream, it was my first book that came out in 2018. It talks about what happened in Florida, how I ended up in Florida, what the circumstances were behind that, and then actually how I got out. And it talks about step-by-step all the different options that I tried to make happen to be able to get out of that situation. I've had many, many people become really kind of overwhelmed with emotions when I tell them that a happy ending depends on where you stop telling the story. So I stopped telling the story with having gotten out of there. And I don't talk about everything that happened after that and the intense abuses that I still had to continue to, to fight back against and overcome and the homelessness and all of that stuff. It, it is a happy ending in the book, but you have to understand that, just because it's a happy ending doesn't mean that I had a happy life afterward. And it's hard to kind of get that sometimes. I mean, I think that would be common sense. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, I would think so. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So yeah, detailed pieces of a shattered dream. Um, I do have that available as a free ebook. And this is something that's, it is mentioned briefly in my full autobiography, Custom Justice, but it does not go into the details. It does not include that entire story. So if you want that story, it is separate, but you can have it for free. <laughs> no, I think it's probably amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Thank you. It's been a lot of fun writing all these. So I've got a total of 13 books now. Number 13 just came out June 1st. Um, And the first one that I ever published came out in January of 2018. That's a lot of books in a very short amount of time. Yes, you love (laughs) to write. (laughs) I do. I do. But my most recent book is called Surviving in the Kitchen. It's a cookbook. Okay. Surviving in the Kitchen, Recipes for Life, Love, and a Full Stomach. And it's all about being creative in the kitchen. And when you're a trauma survivor, you have this uh, trauma response of having a need for control. When you have this need for control, you have to understand that 90% of our lives around us, we have zero control over. Take control where you can, whether that's a paintbrush on a canvas or pen and paper or measuring flour to put in a loaf of bread. If you take these little things and you learn how to control just these little creative moments that you have, you can express yourself and work away your PTSD and your trauma responses and retrain your brain to have healthier responses in the future. Oh, that would be very helpful for a lot of people. Right. So I also have a workbook series uh, called Growth from Darkness. The first book in the series uh, is about the stages of trauma. And it talks about you go through the five stages of trauma, which mirror the stages of grief. And that's not by coincidence in any way. So you go through depression, anger, bargaining, denial. You go through the acceptance phase. You go through all of these and you can bounce around in them. You don't have to hit them in a particular order. But the reason that you're grieving is because you have to grieve for the person that you were going to be. You are changed. Your life is changed. The way you think and function is changed. You will never be the person that you were going to be. All your plans, everything that you had, goals, all that stuff has changed. You have to grieve for that person that is not going to exist now before you can accept the person that you are now going to be. So the second book in the works in the workbook series is going to be trauma reactions, what the long-term consequences are of not dealing with them and how to fight back against them and have a healthier life. The third book in the series is about creating healthy boundaries. And the fourth book is about how to support a survivor. This is something that I get asked over and over and over again. My girlfriend, my boyfriend, my loved one has been through this traumatic experience and I don't know how to be there for them. And I can't yeah. find the book on the shelf. So I'm writing it. Actually, I had a guest on, I think he's like four back and he is a partner of a survivor. Kind of, she told him what he did right and what he did wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And so he kind of like wrote a manual to help other people. And I was like, that's really cool hearing from a man's perspective, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. His name wasn't Sean Hamilton, was it? Sure was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love Sean. He's amazing. Yeah, he's super sweet. <laughs> yeah. Man, he and his wife both have been through some stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, they've come so far, you know? Yeah. So, that's great. And, again, that was somebody she knew. So, it's just yeah. you never know. You never know. Yeah, exactly. It's bizarre the way that happens. Yeah, And, That also feeds into our guilt. 
You know, we have this sense of feeling like it's our fault, not just because my mother told me it was my fault, but because it kept on happening to me. Even if she hadn't told me that it was my fault because it kept happening to me, I would have believed that it was my fault because it kept happening to me. Right. What am I doing wrong? It's my fault. What am I doing wrong? There was a survey done of high school students a few years ago. And in this survey, they asked boys and girls to mark down yes or no when they believe it is acceptable for a male to force a female to have sex with him. Basically, when is rape okay? But they didn't word it that way. They were tricky. The first is if they've been dating a long time. 32% of boys and 19% of girls said that's okay at that point. They had a bunch of questions and they went down the row and the numbers kept getting worse and worse as they went. Towards the very end, there was the, the last question that said, when she's already been sexually active with someone else, 54% of boys and 48% of girls said at that point, it's acceptable to be forced to have sex with them. Oh, no, 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 no. When we have these numbers that are coming up where people genuinely believe this, we're also going to have this thought in the back of our mind to where that, that rape means that we deserved it. I was already sexually active with somebody else. So of course it was acceptable at this point. If we think for a second that it's acceptable at any point to experience rape, there's something wrong. Absolutely. No, it's not okay. People should have choices. And if you do not give an option, whether you don't want it, whether you're passed out, that doesn't give you the right. Absolutely not. And it shouldn't depend on saying no, because then the situations that I personally was in, I can tell you every single time I wanted to say no, but I knew better because I didn't want to have to skip my next several meals. I didn't want to go through sleep deprivation anymore. I didn't want to be waterboarded again. Saying no wasn't an option for me. It was still rape. Oh, absolutely. No, that's that's torture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine all that. And I just love your spirit. You know, like, this is obviously hard topics, but you are still able to make light of it and... I commend you for that because, you know, sometimes you have to have a little bit of light and darkness and, you know, like people say dark humor or whatever, but there comes to a point sometimes where I feel like it helps us like overcome things because if you can put a spin on it, that's kind of like funny. It kind of takes away some of that just like embedded trauma. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite things to do when I'm on a public speaking stage somewhere is to make the audience laugh. You know, when I get up to talk about human trafficking, the first thing that they're thinking is I'm going to leave here depressed. I don't want them to leave depressed. I want them to leave feeling uplifted and light and like there's hope in the world because there is. There's still so much that we can do. People have this this thought process in their brains that tells them we can't change the world. I can't change the world. But you know what? You may not be able to change the whole world, but you can change the whole world for one person. Isn't it worth trying? Absolutely. It's 
why I do what I do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we've got to tell these stories. We have to help other people who are going through it. We have to let people know that this is not the rest of your life. Like you can have the worst childhood, the worst everything, but if you can spin it around, find what you are meant to do, what you're supposed to be doing, you can have the life that you still wanted. It's just going to look a little different. Right. And you got to do the work. Yes. You know, you can't go into a therapist and say, okay, wave your magic wand, make me all better. It's not somebody else's responsibility to fix you, even if you are paying them money. You know, I, I said I traumatized my first therapist and she left the industry. I'm pretty sure that's actually accurate. Um, I'm pretty sure I really did traumatize the poor lady. So when I saw my second therapist, I was extremely straightforward with her right off the bat. I told her, number one, do not come at me with prescription medications. I don't want a Band-Aid. I want to get to the root and dig it out. No more weeds. And number two, don't walk on eggshells. Do not pull those punches. Tell it to me like it is, and I'm going to respect you and appreciate you so much more for that. So we have to be honest with these therapists. Now, there was a study recently that was done that said something like 90% of people lie to their therapist. You are going. Right. (laughs) You are paying this person to help you and you're lying to them so they can't. Come on. If you're not comfortable with your therapist, find another one. They are not going to be offended. There's going to be plenty of other people that are going to be looking that up. Or if there's not, that means that the problem is them anyway. And they need to probably work on themselves before they can start helping others. (laughs) Right. Find a therapist that you're comfortable with and you're okay with talking to then you're going to be on the right track and you have to be prepared because this work is hard, but it's so worth it. Absolutely. It's life changing. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Certainly worked for me. I mean, I wouldn't have this marriage that I have now if I hadn't been willing and able to do the hard work. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you have to love yourself again. And that's usually a really big one because nobody can love you until you love yourself. You know, I don't know. I've had some people that have genuinely loved me. I just didn't know how to accept their love until I learned how to love myself. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Maybe some final words. Sure. We have grown up hearing constantly, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that is such a lie. The man who coined that aphorism was named Frederick Nietzsche, and he died in an insane asylum in the 1800s. I think we can let go of what he said now. Oh, shit. (laughs) We should not give credit to our abusers or our abusive past for making us strong and for making us who we are. We already had that strength within us. We just had to dig a little deeper to find it. Just know that no matter what it is that you're going through or whatever it is that you're facing, you've got the strength in you to get through it. And there are resources available. Go find them. Yes. In every state, you just have to go looking for them. Google. Google's your best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I've actually, in the uh, print version of Detailed Pieces of a Shattered Dream, I have at least two organizations listed per state across the entire 50 U.S. states. 
if somebody is having an issue with human trafficking or they think they know somebody who is, they can contact any of these organizations or they can contact uh, the National Human Trafficking Hotline. There's an International Human Trafficking Hotline. I have that listed in the book also. It's, it's worth looking into to be able to find resources available to help somebody get out of trafficking or to survive it once they do get out. Suicide rates among survivors is huge. Less than 2% of all victims survive. Remember, of the survivors of the 2% who actually survive, so few of us make it through the first year. Very scary and sad statistics. I actually have a lot of phone numbers on my website too. So anyone who's listening, head on over. And I have like human trafficking. I think I have a shelter, substance abuse. Um, I'm all over the place. (laughs) Have you listed 988 yet? Yep. Awesome. I love that. What an amazing service that is. I wish that was around when I had needed them. Right. So great. And it's easy to remember. I was like, thank God. Like they didn't try to make it like this long. I think at first they tried to make it like an actual phone number. And then it went to like nine digits or something like that. And they're like, okay, we need to shorten this. (laughs) Right. It's too complex. People are not going to remember it. People are going to worry about trying to remember because they they think this will never happen to me. But now that we know 988 exists instead of 911, it's there when we're ready. Right. There when you need it. It's there for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Use it. And honestly, the people at 988 don't mind getting those questions too. If you want to call them to ask them, hey, I think I have seen something happening, but I need to know more about who you are before I tell you more. They will answer your questions. They will walk you through it and tell you what's going on, what would happen. Mm. Use it. Good to know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was great. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. I have enjoyed our chat. I have enjoyed our laughs. laughs. No, me too. This is great. I want to stay in contact because I started a nonprofit called the crime connection. Oh, and it's about helping like sex trafficking, domestic abuse, um, childhood trauma, all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. I'd love to stay in contact. Yes. I'm all about that. Yes, please. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sometimes when I talk, I sit there and my mind is in like 12 different spots. And so like <laughs> the words don't want to come out right. And I'm like, oh my God, would you say what you're thinking? But yeah. <laughs> Just don't always say what you're thinking. <laughs> you know me already. <laughs> because I am you. <laughs> no, I totally get it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thank you again so much. I really did enjoy this and we're going to stay in touch. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Of course. Thank you. (laughs) Links are at the bottom of the show notes. And if you know somebody who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. I really appreciate all you guys listening and we'll talk crime another time. Bye.